Hey, MedTechers. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. I think one of the stories of the decade, for good or bad, has been uh, the renal denervation space uh, area. Has Nowhere, I think, has seen highs as high or lows as low as that space. Uh, obviously, we had the uh, difficulty following the simplicity trials way back with Medtronic and Ardian, followed by a number of strategics that uh, exited the area, sort of just gave up on the space. But uh, one company, Recor Medical, has uh, has stuck it through, stuck with uh, rental innovation, and uh, has been rewarded lately with the uh, with an acquisition by a, a new player to MedTech, Otsuka. So today we're going to talk about that deal, about that company, with its uh, founder and chief operating officer, Mano Iyer. Uh, it's uh, it's an interesting story, Recor Medical, but uh, Mano brings us an interesting take of his own. He's got an unusual path to running a med tech company. Uh, he followed in a, an unusual path, both career-wise, but also uh, geographically, uh, starting a company, his first company, in a somewhat unusual place. So I know you'll enjoy this conversation with uh, Mano Iyer, and uh, Recor Medical has been one of those great med tech stories that we're happy to highlight. So Let's get into this week's MedTech Talk podcast. Well, Mano Iyer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to uh, have Recor on again. We talked to Andy Weiss last year, who's at the MedTech conference. Now you've had some some big news of late that I want to follow up on, uh, but I, I want to talk a bit about you and your 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 path to MedTech. What uh, what led you to uh, to join? this sector and, uh, and to choose a, the career path that you've chosen? Sure. Well, I think perhaps it's a bit of a non-traditional path considering you know, others here in the Valley. But I was fortunate enough to stumble into an internship um, in the mid-90s with a company called Arrow International. And at that time, Arrow was a critical care company um, that was also initially investing in new cardiovascular technologies, an intraortic balloon pump, left ventricular assist device, as well as electrophysiology. And I worked as an intern in the electrophysiology group. And I think a few days after starting, I was able to see an open heart uh, bypass procedure at the local hospital. And I immediately fell in love with the area and the, and the belief that I, as a simple mechanical engineer, could have an impact on people's lives um, in this space. And I hadn't ha- felt that up until that point with other fields I had explored as an engineering student. How does an intern get into an operating room? Come on. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Well, Arrow was a company, and they had, uh, they had good contacts with the local hospital as part of training, right? I think it was a great training ground for young engineers because it was an engineering-driven company. You know, the, the CEO and senior management were engineers who had taken old um, coiling machines from, from, the, uh, from the textile industry in Reading, Pennsylvania, and turned it into guide wire coiling, coiling machines. So um, it wasn't a marketing-driven company. It was engineering-driven, and they believed in investing in engineers to, to lead these new fields of research. So it's fantastic for a young engineer to, to come in and jump in and, and get a lot of exposure um, across uh, various aspects of the business. So, so you were on an engineering path. You just didn't know where you're going to apply those engineering skills. I was. I would say I started on an engineering path. Uh, I, a path. I knew that I was not a good engineer, and that I was more interested on the business <laughs> side of things. And I, I tried to position myself, uh, and it fortunately it went in that direction and went in a positive direction. I can say now. 
So what was your first uh, full-time job in medtech then? So after the internship, I actually took a full-time job with Arrow and worked on electrophysiology with them, which, you know, they never, it didn't work out that they didn't invest into the therapeutic side. And I saw an opportunity to move overseas with them. And I went to their facility in the Czech Republic in the late 90s. And it started down a path of ending up, you know, instead of spending two years and coming home, I ended up working in Europe for 15 years. So majority of my med tech career at this point, which is also unusual. It sure is. So what was that decision like to uh, to move to uh, Eastern Europe in the mid in the late 90s? It was an interesting time to go there. In your mid-20s and you're young and you want to see the world, it, um, it, it was exciting. And I think the company was supportive. And, you know, it was myself and another American who was leading uh, the engineering side of the business there, you know, on this island. And I think we very quickly found that, um, you know, I was able to get exposure to the marketing side and to the critical care side of the business. But it's also difficult when you're so far away from corporate headquarters to make decisions. And it led to the next uh, jump, which was starting a business with uh, my friend and colleague and the, uh, the other American there, Tim Lenahan. We started a company called Contract Medical International um, in Dresden, Germany, um, at the end of 2000, early 2001, which was an, you know, an outsourcing company of R&D, manufacturing, regulatory services. And I'm also proud to say 18 years later, it's, it's still growing. It's a profitable business. And um, so, um, it was, it was, so we were able to to leverage a unique time in history just before the the, the dot com bubble burst. Wow! To start that 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 business, which was unusual, because most uh, of those businesses exist in Ireland and the English speaking part of Europe, and I think it was one of the first um, in 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 mainland Europe. Yeah, I was gonna. Well, where did you grow up? So I was born and raised in New York City. Oh. So, <laughs> of course, that makes perfect sense. Exactly. So, after school, I hadn't gone back, but that's amazing. So, how did you? I mean, I would think that, uh, or you want to start a company with your your, your friend, um, as you noted, and Germany would be the unlikeliest place, and they're one of the unlikelier places for a guy from New York City who perhaps could have gone home to New York City or to to, to Silicon Valley to to do something similar. How did you muster up the courage and the financing to sort of create a new company in a in a literally foreign land? Well, it's funny because my, my parents joke because they're Indian immigrants and they came here in the 60s looking for <laughs> opportunity. And they say, why are you leaving America? We just got here. I'm doing, I'm doing what you did. I, I'm going looking for opportunity. And I think what's worked for me is putting myself at the intersection of ideas uh, in my career has helped me help to create these opportunities. Right. And I think I did that in moving overseas. I think it's also the people that you work with, finding you know great people to work with. And at that time, Tim Lanan was was a fantastic mentor and uh, colleague and friend. And, you know, he had met someone in Germany who was in the medtech space who said, you know, the German government is giving grants for companies to start businesses here, especially the former eastern part of the country, because the unemployment rate was so high. And we saw an opportunity while at Arrow where there was a lot of physicians and groups who, who had, you know, some funding, but didn't have a place to get their ideas developed. You know, and, you know, at the early stage, it's, it's difficult to to um, to do the early engineering work and then, you know, also the expertise on the regulatory side and let alone, you know, early production. And we had all of those skills. So we were able to start small and, and, and build from there. Well, I think one of the most critical things folks in their 20s do is, is build their network uh, and get to know folks either through biz school or through their work. How did you uh, build your network being uh, first in uh, in Czechoslovakia and then and then uh, over to Germany, was that a concern that you you wanted to remain engaged with with medtech and and how did you uh, maintain those contacts? 
or establish those contacts? It's a great question. I, you know, not sure I was paying enough attention to that <laughs> point in time. I think the network was built through trying to find customers and really just trying to build the business um, through the people I had met via Arrow, of course, at that point in time, and, and, and Tim as well. And, but I also knew I wanted to go back to business school at some point. And I think, you know, in 2004, um, 2003, made that decision. CMI was more stable at that point. And I was also debating, you know, what my career in MedTech would look like in the future. And so I was fortunate enough to return to the Bay Area and come back to, to Stanford for, for my MBA. So when did you then start uh, MD Start? Was that must have been after business school. Did you go back to, to Europe to do that? Right. And, and that gets back to your point about the network, I think, via Arrow. And, you know, of course, working with Tim, um, there were folks involved with uh, Sophie Nova at, at that point in time. So I was in business school, graduated. I, went, I was already back in Europe. I was working in London um, consulting, trying to figure out how to get back into med tech. And I got a call uh, from from Tim and another another gentleman, Gerard Hasquet who is a venture partner at Sophie Nova, who I'd met because uh, he sold his company to Arrow in the late 90s. And they were you know, looking for someone to, to do device investing. Antoine Papernik at Sophie Nova was looking for someone to, to help him on the device side. And they were also looking to, to start MD Start. So it, it, it turned into a great opportunity uh, for me to move uh, in early 2008 to Paris and support those activities, as well as um, for a brief period of time, a consultant for Corval before they were acquired, and that's relevant in the recore context. Sure. Well, and I want to get into MD Start just in a second, but so was there a conscious decision? I mean, you could, I'm sure people advise you if you want to get into med tech, you need to stay in the U.S., you need to go to Minneapolis, you need to stay in Silicon Valley or Boston, whatever. You chose to go back to Europe. Was it, again, where you were just familiar and you had a network, or, or did you sort of see, look, I've got a special skill set that perhaps if I'm working from Europe, I'll be able to uh, have more opportunities because I might be bringing skills that folks need more uh, in Europe, or there are fewer people who have that skill set where I'm going in Europe. I think that was part of the thinking. If I'm completely honest, it was because of a relationship (laughs) at that point in time. And um, it's a good reason to. It worked in in my favor. And I think, yeah, because I was able to, to get the position at Sophie Nova because of the the earlier relationships developed in Europe uh, while working in the Czech Republic and then in Germany. Excellent. So, so what? Tell us a little bit about MD Start. What was that, and what did you do to get that going? So, you know, similarly to to CMI, I think they, there was uh, you know um, there was a lot of deals coming into Sophie Nova, which were very early stage. And of course, for a venture capital firm, you know, there's you can only do very few deals out of the, the hundreds or thousands of opportunities that are seen. And I think Antoine, you know, correctly identified this this opportunity to to create an accelerator, which I think had already been, of course, done in, in many different ways here in the U.S., but is not being done in Europe. And when you look at the history of medtech, some of the, the greatest technologies from X-ray to stenting to angioplasty to TAVR, you know, all started in Europe and were done initially clinically in Europe but were then ultimately commercialized by, uh, by Americans. And I think there's also something to the, to the cultural risk sensitivity right, of Europeans. It, you know, it's in, the, it's in the, somehow the DNA of Americans now to take that risk, and it's acceptable to try and, and fail, if you will. It's, it's seen as lessons learned, whereas in Europe it wasn't necessarily the case um, in past years, and it's perhaps improving now. So there's more sensitivity to trying and failing something there. It wasn't seen as a positive thing. So 
these technologies um, would ultimately get commercialized in, in the U.S. And thus, you saw the rise of big medtech companies in the U.S. and not in Europe. So there was this opportunity to invest in these um, clinician entrepreneurs or clinicians who didn't want to be entrepreneurs, but give them um, the resources necessary to to move these ideas forward. And so you could you could um, invest 50, 100,000 smaller amounts and and see if you could, quote unquote, kill the idea quickly or if not, then advance it into um, you know, a traditional company and you can put in the proper funding at that point in time. But there was a lot of ideas being lost in this, you know, in this quote unquote chasm between the grant funding that, um, that, um, clinicians would have, and then trying to move it to the next phase. And there's also this element of venture capitalists weren't interested in investing in a, a clinician who didn't have the business experience to move the idea forward. Before I get into the, the move to Sofanova, which was obviously a good one, <laughs> Did you ever feel the need to uh, to be at a bigger company? Most most folks we talk to, you know, they obviously sp spend 10, 15 years in Medtronic and then go into the startup world. Did you ever feel that was a, a gap on your resume? You know, I mean, I think that is the traditional pathway here. And I think perhaps I came in through the back door, if you will, <laughs> and then going right into a startup. And I haven't felt that. I think I feel more comfortable in the smaller company environment. And ultimately, you know, I enjoy um, turning turning chaos into a little bit of order if you will. Sure. So and I'm invested perhaps doing that in myself or in smaller groups. So let's talk about uh, joining uh, Sofanova in Paris and uh, and the, the creation of Recor. I mean, Recor is kind of really a, a playbook medtech deal. It's found, founded in 2009, sold nine years later. You know, maybe maybe playbook would be five or six years, but, but nine years is pretty good. Um, how did you, well, how did you, let's get a little more into how you landed at Sofanova and then how did Recor become a clear opportunity that you wanted to pursue? Well, you know, I, I came into Sophie Nova first um, because of the, you know, what I mentioned previously about these contacts from, you know, the, the previous network with Sherrod Squared and Tim Lenahan, and they put me in touch with Antoine. And in, in coming to Sophie Nova, then there were these other opportunities to work on um, the traditional VC side, looking at deal flow on the medtech side, and then helping get MD start off the ground. And also there was some some initial work um, at uh, with Jacques again at Corvalve, who had some ideas on the mitral valve repair side. And that was all that's all related to Recor. So if I go back and try and connect the dots, you know, this electrophysiology work I did as a young engineer at Arrow in the late 90s, then led to doing some um, some project work uh, for CMI for for another company in the early 2000s. And because I had done that work in electrophysiology, um, I was able to get an internship at Philips in 2005 in, in their strategy group for the summer, looking at the atrial fibrillation market. And they were determining you know, what, what they should do there. They had some relationships with Hansen and Stereotaxis and were determining whether they should get into the therapeutic side of things. And as part of that work, I came across this technology at a company called ProRhythm, which had developed this unique ultrasound-based uh, platform for a pulmonary vein isolation. So fast forward to working at Sofinova and doing some work, you know, with Jacques again at Coravalve. We were looking at mitral valve repair, and you know, I, I put two and two together, and I thought that there could be a unique way to denature the collagen of the mitral annulus for mitral valve repair using um, uh, an energy-based source. And the the best energy-based source I could think of for that application was this ultrasound device that, which I had seen a few years prior. 
and I came into contact with this company through the Sofinova uh, work I was doing and learned that they were um, um, also starting to explore this space, but also were in desperate need of financing. And this was just before the Lehman Brothers collapse of, of late 2008. And, and, and so financing was becoming very difficult. They had experienced some adverse events in their clinical trials. So they uh, ended up going into, into bankruptcy. So long story short, over the course of you know, 2008 and, and late 2009, um, we were able to structure a deal to buy the assets of ProRhythm and, and put that into, into Recor. And this was really the vision of you know, Antoine and Sophie Nova and, uh, and Jacques again as well. So what was your job there? Were you, were you going to test it until it, it failed? And, and then was your plan to, to hand it off to, to someone else? Or, or did you see this immediately as something that uh, you wanted to be with long term? Well, I think in joining Sophie Nova, you know, the discussion I had with Antoine was, you know, I wasn't looking to be a venture capitalist. I think the ability to, again, as I mentioned, put yourself at the intersection of these ideas mm -hmm. helps to create opportunities. And I think I was looking for an opportunity to go and, and start and run with. And uh, but I was open. I said, if at any point it doesn't make sense for me to be, you know, to leave this, I'm fine. But, you know, until that time, you know, I will continue. And so, you know, I was excited by the opportunity. I believed in it. And I think that was critical for for Antoine and Sophie Nova and Jacques to invest in, in me to do that. How much did the uh, the broader renal renovation landscape sort of play into the pursuit of Recor? Was this an opportunity to to build off something that had already sort of been, been started, or did you see this as a, as a unique path? So during the process of acquiring the assets, you know, Medtronic invested or led around, which was, I think, approximately 45 to $50 million. I recall January uh, 2009, if I'm correct, they invested in, in Ardian. Mm -hmm. And so this, of course, um, you know, um, when I looked at this, I said, you know, this is another reason to, to buy these assets because it was the, 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 the ultrasound-based platform was a platform technology. And I thought it can be used uh, for a number of different areas. And I specifically highlighted this. And actually, shortly after acquiring the assets, I did some animal work in renal denervation. So because um, the, the, I knew that mitral valve repair was a complicated area and um, you know there was only so much financing. So I was looking for the right opportunity with this technology. So how did the next few years unfold as, as Recor was, was building into a company? Uh, did you... Did you assume the, I know you're COO now, were you CEO at the time? I was. I was based in Paris within the Sophie Nova offices trying to save on uh, on, on money. Mm -hmm. And the assets, uh, just from a legal standpoint, had to stay within the building where they were previously, which was on Long Island in New York. So I was huh. commuting to, to Long Island. <laughs> and being a native New Yorker, you know, it was, it was uh, it's, it's a bit further out from New York City. A little bit. So it was challenging managing a team of folks, uh, I think about 10 folks in, in New York and trying to determine, you know, what to do next. And it was in a very large facility. So um, but it, it you know, we started very quickly um, trying to do early clinicals uh, on the mitral valve side while doing some animal work uh, in renal denervation and other areas. And, um, you know, we found that the initial results were gray uh, on the mitral valve repair side. And it was challenging to really get a sense of how much time and money would be required to get uh, clarity, and you know, uh, you know that investors, you know, the thing they hate the most is uncertainty. So, and and what happened in the midst of that is that Medtronic acquired Ardian for you know a record sum in late 2010, and I think that um, allowed uh, the conversation internally and with the board, and 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 um, 
as shareholders to be one of um, whether we should pivot to this area because then it shifted from being a, a clinical play to a commercial opportunity. So I think, and, and I stated then, and I still believe today, that um, this technology was, was really perfectly suited for performing renal denervation um, in the most consistent manner possible. How challenging was that pivot? And how do you know, I mean, you, you speak with confidence now, and, and you, I'm sure you had confidence then, but how do you assure yourself that I'm not just uh, telling myself that this is going to work? Because I, I think when you make pivots like that, you, you find reasons for it to sound like a good idea. Uh, how do you how do you guard against that and, and make sure what you're really doing is a good idea? Well, no, that's a fantastic point, and like we as entrepreneurs, that is the nature of what we do, right? I think, but it is uh, based in in some facts and some science, even at that point in time, because I think we we did have data, preclinical data um, on the bench, of course, and then in some animals that showed what the um, the heating profile and the cooling profile of our system, what it could be. So you, you have to take that and, of course, translate that to the, new, um, to the new application. And in this case, we were going from the heart to the renal arteries. But um, it, it's um, a bit easier to do once you, we, we had that initial data set. And, of course, in acquiring the assets, there was 10 years of data that we're leveraging and a lot of other work that had been done. So I was already building off of what was there. And you're, you're um, you know, telling a story and building an argument uh, with investors, potential investors, that you'll be able to, you know, downsize the technology and, you know, fine tune, if you will, for the new indication. But it's a bit easier at that point. And then, of course, well, let's just follow the follow the recourse story a bit. What were some of the challenges I was going to mention? Obviously, the, the disappointing simplicity trials. Right. What did that do to your, I mean, you pivoted and now all of a sudden there's a big bucket of cold water dumped on the whole field's head. Right. Um, how challenging well, was that period? Or was it challenging at all? Maybe you, maybe you were at a good spot. No, of, co- of course it was. I think, but between you know the pivot and and that, you know, there was a couple of years where there was already kind of a rise and, and fall, if you will, because there was a lot of excitement. You know, there was there was uh, acquisitions taking place, and 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 for us, you know, we we got some initial data and need, continued to needed to continue to fine tune the technology, needed to raise more money. And uh, and also, you know, this expectation that we were going to continue to grow and, 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 you know, ride the coattails of the field. Now you had not just Medtronic, but St. Jude, Boston Scientific, you know, a lot of the big companies all leveraging their, you know, radio frequency experience in electrophysiology, ironically, to um, to um, accelerate their programs. And so you had, you know, uh, three Goliaths and, and, and David's popping up. So how do we compete commercially? And I think that was the point where. Um, um, we brought in Andy, uh, and you know Andy was had become a mentor to me. We'd met because Sophie Nova invested in his previous company, Coaxia, and right around the time you know he sold Coaxia to Zoll Medical it was in um, late 2012, early 2013. You know uh, we were looking also at, at at bringing in more experience for the future, right? Potentially going public, you know, needing to raise a large round and and building out the leadership team. So it was a perfect opportunity for me to say I'm happy to learn from someone who's far more experienced in the field. And I think that was one of the better decisions I think I've, I've ever made. That's worked out really well. And, and that leads into, um, you know, a few, some months later, January 9th, 2014, when, you know, the, this uh, announcement from Medtronic that HTN3 had failed, it was, of course, a huge surprise to everyone in the field, uh, pretty much collapsed overnight. 
And it, it, we, of course, fortunately at that point, we had raised enough money in 2013 to survive that. And um, we, we were able to wait out you know, some of the uncertainty. It took a few more months to look at the data and then a few more months to talk to the FDA and the clinical community. But by the mid of that year, I recall June 2014, um, we had, there was a couple of things that happened. One, there was, a, there was a meeting with the FDA and you had the big companies there. You had the, the cardiology community, the hypertension community. And looking at HTN3 and understanding that there was a lot of variability in that study design. And if we could um, do a better job on the technology and procedure, which with our ultrasound platform, we felt very comfortable with. If we could do a better job with blood pressure uh, measurement, if we could do a better job of medication management and medica medication variability, which was a huge problem in HCN3, that we felt that we could run a better study and see success. And one proof of that, was, which also came out in June, was um, the Diener HTN study in France. And Michel Azizi, who is now our co-PI of our studies, at that point, he had run his own study, not sponsored by, by industry, just sponsored by the French government, with hypertension centers of excellence. And he had standardized medication management and he had proven that you could see a statistically significant blood pressure reduction in renal denervation versus a control group. So that gave us momentum to continue. But, but were you convinced that if you ran a better starting study that produced better results, that there'd be interested buyers out there at some point? Because as you noted, everyone did a real uh, U-turn and uh, dumped dump their renal denervation assets pretty quickly. Uh, you're at a time where, yeah, we, we might prove it works, but is anybody out there, will anyone out there really care? Right. Absolutely. I mean, we were convinced. The challenge is to convince people to invest in you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's always the case. To run a large, long, expensive clinical study. The FDA then said, well, you need to run another sham study, not a pivotal study, a feasibility study. But in order to address the medication variability, we, we propose that you do it in mild to moderate hypertension patients, which is a much larger percentage of the hypertension population, which is great from a market standpoint, because then you open up the market to a billion people. But the challenge is there was no data in this patient population. So, um, you know, there's a scientific basis for it. And hypertension experts were saying, of course, it'll work in those patients if it works in the resistant patients. But you really don't know, especially in the context of a sham study, in the context of, you know, Medtronic, you know, the largest pure medical device company in the world running a study failed. There's a lot of skepticism. But we believed. We believed in our technology and we believed in, in the study designs. Well, so did, uh, so did Otsuka and they came in uh, 2015, 14. Right. Uh, we, we, yeah. We'd engaged in a conversation with them going back to early 2012. They had watched the rise and fall here, which I think is, was also part of um, you know, what was important here. They saw that you know, the highest highs were unrealistic and the lowest lows also weren't true. And they said the truth is somewhere in between. You know, they're, they're an old family business going back 100 years, a diversified business. They really take the long view in business opportunities. Um, they've also, you know, in the pharmaceutical side of their business, had seen some, you know, some drugs work out really well as blockbusters and some not so well. So they understand that risk profile. And, you know, they, of course, believed in the opportunity in hypertension and that our technology was uh, the best suited for it. So it took a few years. But uh, uh, once they invested, they really made a very strong commitment to the field and to us. What was that uh, engagement like with them? I mean, they, they did, obviously did not have a, a play in medtech. They, they, you did not know where they were coming from. Um, how did, 
How did you react when they first expressed interest? And in, in how did this relationship build? Because it was uh, structured initially very interestingly in that it, they had territorial rights over some of the sales, I think for Japan and, and Asia it was. Um, how did that all come together? Because that's a really fascinating way to, to uh, structure a medtech deal. It sounds like a pharma deal. Right. And of course, you know, that's, that was their experience on the pharmaceutical side. Um, previous management had also made some investments on, on different medical devices, mostly in Asia. Um, and I think they have an investment in Microport in China. So they were gaining experience there. And I think when, when new management came in, um, they were looking for, you know, these bigger opportunities. They, they saw opportunity generally in medtech, but were looking to invest in, in something that could really uh, be the next, you know, billion dollar opportunity. And so, you know, of course, they took their time. It took, you know, it took time to build the trust and respect um, with us, understanding our technology, understanding how we operated and, and understanding what, what the, you know, the future looked like. And of course, after the uncertainty of HTN3, as we developed the, the clinical trial design, worked closely with them so that they, you know, they bought into that. And they saw an opportunity um, not just to invest in us for our U.S. and European activities, but to start the same type of program and really be the leader in Japan and Korea and in Asia, where they're very, very strong. And so I think it was, it's, you know, I found in my career, it's, it's always about timing. And I think the timing worked out perfectly um, for them. And of course, it was critical for us because it was, it was incredibly difficult to raise money at that point in time. Pardon me, folks. This is Tom. I'm going to take a quick break to tell you about our upcoming event, the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. It's happening on October 11th in Boston. I know digital health does not sound like a med tech story, but there's a lot to it. As we know, the walls between the two sectors are crashing down and our Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit really just looks at how technology is finding its way into the healthcare system. So check it out. Go to dhis.net. See our agenda. We'll have a, uh, we usually have a number of uh, larger players from MedTech and Pharma there. So uh, you certainly should check it out as well. So again, it's happening on October 11th in Boston. Go to dhis.net. Check out the agenda and the speaker list. Now let's get back into this conversation. So can you tell us a little bit more about the clinical trial design? Well, interestingly, when we, when we uh, structured the, the Radiance HTN trial design, there, it's two trials within one. So there's the one trial, which you know, the FDA recommended back in 2014, which is the mild to moderate patient population that comes off their medication. But we also structured a trial based off of uh, Michelle Azizi's Diener HDN called TRIO, Radiance HDN TRIO. And in the resistant hypertensive patient population, and that was the one that you know Tsuka really believed in, that everyone really believed was the critical one, and and we weren't sure what was going to happen into mild in the mild to moderate patient population, which is called solo. And as it turns out, we were able to run solo much much faster, given the size of the population and the ability to attract patients there uh, faster. Um, so it wasn't sure, um, but it, as we saw those results, it became very clear that. Um, it, it made a lot of sense, of course, to move this forward as quickly as possible. It made sense for Otsuka to, to uh, take control of Recore and so that we can work together and have the resources necessary to move this forward you know, globally um, at this point. And what does the acquisition mean for the Recore team, for the company, uh, for Otsuka going forward? How, how will you all work together? So, you know, I think what's, what's, what's fascinating here is you have a few different uh, major areas converging, you know, one is you have a new entrant in the medtech space, Notsuko, which I think is important, of course, for the field going forward. You have 
uh, a potential new area of interventional medicine um, here with renal denervation, which is back. And of course, will take a lot of work to be developed. And uh, also what's unusual in this acquisition, normally, you know, when you get acquired, uh, the, the, the larger entity um, has the resources to, to move it forward and, and doesn't need you anymore. But in this case, um, we, we can remain within Otsuka. Otsuka doesn't have a medical device business to, to pull us up into. So, um, you know, we're all planning to stay and, and try and, and, and move this forward. I think it's an incredibly exciting time. It's unusual in your career that you have the opportunity to not only participate in, in a new area of interventional medicine, but actually, you know, be, be responsible for, for, uh, for building it. Um, so um, I'm excited to, to take the next step here, run the pivotal studies, get approval in the U.S., um, think about commercialization in Europe and other parts of the world over the next few years and see where that goes. And I assume, uh, given your past travels, that uh, you'll now be completing the circle and uh, moving back to Asia where your parents started <laughs> to work with Otsuka? At this point in time, very happily settled here in the Bay Area. Of course, it's an incredible area. Um, so look forward to, to staying here for some time and, and we'll see what the future holds. So let's speak about the technology again for a second. What specifically, what's next? Uh, what sort of outlook are we looking for for a commercial launch, et cetera? So, you know, we are running a pivotal trial. We're starting a pivotal study. We have approval and we're planning to uh, run this 225 patient uh, pivotal study um, over the next couple of years. I think we, we anticipate completion in 2020 and then, of course, working with the FDA on approval. So as soon as possible thereafter, you know how that uh, how that works out. But, you know, commercialization in the U.S., um, you know, 2021, I think, is, is realistic. Of course, the challenges here for this for any new field is reimbursement and working with the authorities on that and understanding which patient populations uh, make sense to to treat first. Of course, hypertension is a huge, huge issue. And so um, you can't come out of the gates and treat everyone. So we'll, we need to work with um, the clinical community, the different you know stakeholders here in hypertension, um, cardiology, nephrology, and so on, as well as you know the payers and um, and develop an intelligent path forward. And finally, on a scale of uh, say 100 million to a billion, uh, where does the uh, where does the acquisition price? The terms for this uh, for this acquisition, where do they where do they fall? Can you uh, give us any details? So, um, due to some regulatory issues, I'm unable to to discuss that at this point in time. I would say, you know, the, uh, in in the med tech realm, I'd say that you know everyone is is uh, satisfied with um, with the return. So, I think it was positive for the field, um, especially considering all that that's happened. That's fine, Mano. Thank you so much for joining us. It was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you, MedTechers, for joining us on this week's MedTech Talk podcast. Don't forget the Digital Health Innovation Summit is happening on October 11th in Boston. Go to dhis.net to check it out. Please help out the podcast. Again, the numbers are doing great. We really appreciate the support. Subscribe if you haven't already subscribed. You can just find the subscribe button on your uh, iTunes player uh, or whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. Or you can uh, search in iTunes and you'll find it and you can subscribe to the podcast there. But even more important than that, just tell your friends uh, or tell a friend. If you all told a friend, we'd have many, many more people listening and, and we would love that to happen. So thanks again for tuning in this week. Tune in next week. We're going back to our weekly schedule for another great tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast.